This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. I use DigitalOcean to host a side project, and I'm starting to move the hosting for my blog and this podcast off their current hosting solution to DigitalOcean. With a large selection of one-click apps, from the basics of the LAMP stack, to Ghost and WordPress for blogs, to pre-set up Docker host images, with droplets that can spin up in 55 seconds, the ability to manage SSH keys for remote access, and more, DigitalOcean makes it super easy to get your project up and running. With the ability to easily add team members, use their API to scale out your applications, and have droplets in data centers around the world, DigitalOcean is ready to take on your larger projects as well. Have a question on how to set something up with DigitalOcean? DigitalOcean has a strong community around creating documentation and tutorials as well to get you set up and running quickly. New users can get up and running on DigitalOcean for free using promo code GEEKRY, all cap, to get $10 worth of credit when you get started. This episode is sponsored by PurelyFunctional.tv. Have you been thinking about learning Clojure but don't know where to start? Would you like a fun introduction to Clojure that guides you through the difficulties of learning new concepts? Would you like to learn the fundamentals of Clojure without spending hours wading through blog post tutorials? Try the interactive courses at PurelyFunctional.tv. They teach you Clojure quickly and thoroughly using animations, exercises, and screencasts. The courses build good fundamentals and guide you to develop deep skills with the Clojure language and libraries. You can get a 25% discount by using the link purelyfunctional.tv. Proctor here with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. First, Code Mesh London is coming up on the 3rd and 4th of November. With its Tutorials Day on the 2nd of November as well, Code Mesh London is the European conference for alternative technologies and programming languages. You can expect code-heavy talks from over 50 speakers, including Sir Tony Hoare, John Hughes, Joe Armstrong, Robert Verding, Don Syme, Stefan Karpinski, Evan Zabucki, core team members of the Hack and Rust languages, and many more. Use code FNGeekery10 for a 10% discount on the two days of conference. On the 5th and 6th of November, Recon will be taking place in San Francisco. Recon is a two-day developer conference that brings together academia and industry to discuss a variety of distributed computing topics ranging from architecting, deploying, and developing NoSQL and distributed applications. On November 9th and 10th, Midwest.io will take place in Kansas City. Midwest.io is a two-day conference bringing together 300 developers for an eclectic collection of talks covering the latest trends, best practices, and research in the field of computing. Visit www.midwest.io to find out more. And coming up on February 18th and 19th in Krakow, Poland, Lambda Days will be taking place. And the call for papers is open and will continue through December 1st, and early registration is now open as well. Visit lambdadays.org to submit your talk proposal or to register. And make sure to use code FUNKYGEEKS4 to win, that's F-U-N-K-Y-G-E-E-K-Z, the number 4, D-W-I-N, for 10% off early bird and regular registration. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to help announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and I'll put them on my notes for future episodes ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have David Chambers. David, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hi, Proctor. Thank you for having me on the show. 
So I grew up in New Zealand and I came to functional programming through quite roundabout means. I'm now very excited about functional programming, interested particularly in Haskell, but spending most of my time writing JavaScript and doing what I can to make JavaScript a viable environment for people who are interested in functional programming. So how did you get into functional programming then? Well, I left high school, went to art school, realized that I'm not particularly interested in art, ended up studying graphic design and worked briefly as a graphic designer and ended up discovering web design, realizing that it was more interesting if I could also program the website and eventually got a job as a professional programmer. And I think just over the last two or three years have really fallen into functional programming through a combination of working with people who were interested in it, but also discovering projects on GitHub that I've been able to contribute to. So what did that look like? You started getting into more software development from the designer side and actual doing the programming and whatnot. Yeah, How did you kind of right. like make that evolution and what did you come in through? So initially I was very interested in building things, visual things, building websites that people could interact with in interesting ways. And as time went on, I became interested in the process of building the software and that became something satisfying in its own right. And I realized that building user interfaces was a difficult training ground for a young functional programmer. And I intentionally left a position as a front-end developer in order to work purely with data so that I could focus on what I consider to be functional programming in an easier context. Because two or three years ago when I was doing front-end development, if React existed, I didn't know about it. And I had some of the same ideas that React has made popular, such as treating the user interface as the result of a function for rendering an application context. But I didn't have any of the necessary nuances that enable things like scroll offsets and field focus and things like that to be preserved through re-rendering. So essentially, I was doing things like trying to replace an entire document by generating a new HTML string and assigning it to document.body.innerHTML or something, which was wonderfully simple, but it was also completely impractical. And I realized that I was really excited by this idea of working with pure functions, but it was not obvious to me how I could apply that approach to building user interfaces. I think with some more time and given the existence of tools like React, I could one day go back to that and apply more of a functional approach. But at the time, it seemed to me that if I wanted to learn more about functional programming, I would be well advised to find some data that required transformation and to get away from the asynchronous user input that makes building websites challenging, I would say. So what did that process look like? You came in, sounds like you were doing front-end dev, and then you mentioned yeah. you had your coworkers kind of involved in functional, but what did that actual path look like of getting into functional programming? So I 
when I began work as a software developer, I worked at Atlassian working on Bitbucket, which is a code hosting website similar to GitHub. And I would say that a lot of what we did there was fairly typical imperative programming. I then spent about a year and a half at a startup in Palo Alto. And people there were talking about things that were new to me. People were talking about immutable data structures and talking about things like referential transparency and terms that were new to me at the time. And I had, by that point, become aware of how challenging it can be to work on a code base that's several years old that has 100-line functions that do mutation on every second line and have database access and all sorts of side effects all intertwined. And so I was interested in the possibility of approaching programming more the way one might approach, say, simplifying an algebraic expression. And the, the thing that I've never enjoyed is having to reason about an entire system all at once. I love being able to look at a small piece of code, ideally a function that takes one argument of a known type and returns a value of some known type and understand the sequence of transformations to take the input and produce the output. So that was what drew me into it, but it wasn't really until I joined my current company, which is Plaid, that I really began putting these ideas into practice. And so for the last almost two years, we've slowly been transforming the code at Plaid from typical startup code, one might say, into something that at least resembles modular functional programming. And I'm really excited about that transition that we've made. So what language were they involved in at that previous job where they were talking about referential transparency and all these other functional concepts? Well, that was a mixture. So at the time I was on the web team, so we were working with CoffeeScript, but there were people writing a lot of <laughs> C, uh, which is a funny thing to say, but at the same time, they were also very interested in performance. So yeah, it wasn't really conducive to learning functional programming in a sense. We weren't using Haskell or OCaml or anything like that. Although there were people at the company who were interested, and I, I still remember one person promising to explain to me what a monad is. Maybe I'll take him up on that offer one day. That makes a little more sense. Because on the pre-call, you kind of mentioned your path coming in through the languages with JavaScript and whatnot. I guess, do you want to kind of cover that since you kind of touched on your path from JavaScript to CoffeeScript and where you've come from and how you've made the progression to what kind of stuff you're doing now? Absolutely. So initially, the two languages that I learned were JavaScript and Python. And I think I had a problem, which is common to many people when they first discover programming, which is being far too concerned with how something looks and not thinking enough about what it means. So to me, CoffeeScript, when I discovered it, was a wonderful language because it made JavaScript look so much nicer. And it also provided some of the nice features from Python, such as list comprehensions. And I use CoffeeScript a lot for perhaps three years. But eventually I realized that CoffeeScript wasn't really fixing any of the things that are wrong with JavaScript. You know, JavaScript, for example, 
has really insane notions of equality. Writing some sort of sensible equivalence function in JavaScript to allow one to say, is the array containing one, two, and three equal to an array containing one, two, and three, and handling all the edge cases, dealing with inherited properties, things like that. It's a horrible task. It's hundreds of lines of code. And obviously I'm jealous when I look at a language which provides you know, these sane notions of equality out of the box. But to get back to the point, CoffeeScript doesn't address any of these underlying issues. It provides nice syntax. And in some cases, it even makes bad habits seem more natural, I would say. One example of this would be the fact that CoffeeScript has very convenient uh, function syntax, uh, which thankfully we now have in ECMAScript 6. We can use the arrow syntax in JavaScript as well. But CoffeeScript required just an arrow to basically define a function, parameters on the left, function body on the right. But one consequence of this is it feels very natural in CoffeeScript to write a function that takes no arguments. Of course, in functional programming, it doesn't really make sense to have a function that takes no arguments. There are some exceptions. Perhaps I want a function that always returns 42, but by and large, functions should be operating on their arguments. So I felt that CoffeeScript was really a sideways step from JavaScript and in the end decided that though the syntax is definitely nicer, the complexity of having a build step in every project and having to decide, will I commit the changes to the generated JavaScript files with each commit, or will I have a build step that I run only when I publish a new version of the software, or you know, will I have some other system for keeping the JavaScript file in sync with the CoffeeScript file? Ended up just being complexity that I wanted to remove. So I decided that underscore, which is a library actually created by the designer of CoffeeScript, I decided that underscore is a better solution to the problem I had with JavaScript, which was essentially having to express everything in such imperative terms. I wanted to be able to at least map over a list or fold over a list and underscore at least provided functions for, for doing these sorts of things. What I found with underscore though, is that there are certain limitations that I ran into. So one of the ways in which underscore encourages composition is by using this special function called chain. And what chain does is allow one to essentially go into a mode where one can chain method calls and use the entire underscore suite of functions as methods on this object upon which one is operating. So one might have a list, one might map over that list, one might reduce it to a single value, one might then do something else with it. The problem with the chain approach and underscore is that only underscore functions have the privilege of being chainable in this way. And one thing that commonly happened to me was I'd chain together three or four underscore transformations, and then I'd want to apply some transformation of my own. And I'd have to essentially break out of the chain and I'd be doing things my own way. So I thought there's got to be a better solution to this. And even though underscore has a compose function for doing regular function composition, it wasn't something that I had seen used or used myself. And it wasn't until I discovered Ramda that I realized that it's possible to have the ability to compose 
complex functions from simple functions without being limited to a set of functions designed within a certain library. So Randa is superficially similar to underscore, but it's very different in two or three key ways. One way is that it never mutates the objects that it receives. If one passes in an object to a Ramda function, one can be sure that one will get back a fresh object rather than having the function mutate the input. Underscore as a rule behaves this way, but there are one or two exceptions. Another difference is that Ramda functions curried by default. This is really wonderful when it comes to building pipelines. Pipelines is the term that Scott, one of Ramda's two creators, likes to use, and I think it's a, a nice term for it. So a pipeline simply being a sequence of functions in a composition. And often those individual functions partially applied Ramda functions. So an example might be one step in a sequence might be to split a string into a list of strings at each comma. So Ramda has a function split, and the first argument to split is the delimiter, and the second argument is the string that one wishes to split. So one might pass in comma as the delimiter, and foo comma bar comma baz as the string to split, and one would get back a list containing foo, bar, and baz. But what's so nice about the currying in Ramda is that split comma with just that one argument returns a partially applied split function that will split at a comma. So Ramda puts a lot of thought into the order in which a function should receive its arguments to promote this partial application. The last argument to a function should be the thing that's most likely to change. So if we consider split, for example, it's quite easy to imagine a case where we have lots of different strings that we want to split on comma. It's less likely that we would have a single string that we wanted to split on lots of different delimiters. So the argument order was chosen to allow us to take advantage of currying in the common case. So Randa provided a different way of building complexity which didn't privilege Ramda functions in any way. And I really appreciated that as a design decision because it meant that when I began using Ramda in my own code, my own functions didn't feel like second-class citizens as they had while using underscore. So Ramda for me was at least as fun to use as underscore, but the bigger benefit for me personally was being exposed to some of the you know, functional programming ideas that underscore doesn't touch on. And perhaps we'll, we'll talk about those a bit later on when we talk about Fantasyland. So, Ramda, you sent me a couple of previews and snippets and some information when we were setting up this call. And one of your examples kind of used the type signature, and it looked very Haskell or ML-ish in the typing. So is there anything that Ramda provides as far as the sanity of types in JavaScript and comparisons that you were kind of talking about as well? Or is it more about the function composition and currying and partial application? Ramda provides a degree of sanity in that Ramda's functions are well-typed. So for example, a Ramda function won't do crazy type checking to decide 
oh, well, if you give me a string, I'll do this. If you give me a list of strings, I'll do this other thing. That pattern is actually incredibly common in the JavaScript ecosystem. And I, I think it's crazy. So Ramda at least says, look, I have one signature. This is my type. I expect an argument of this type and you'll get back a value of that type. That's a good step in the right direction. Personally, I would like to see Ram to go even further. Of course, we can't have compile time checking, but at the very least, we could have descriptive runtime errors. One of the problems that I had early on at Plaid, getting other people on the team on board with Ramda, was the fact that stack traces are crazy. <laughs> There's a lot of internal Ramda stuff that one shouldn't really have to think about. And it's quite common to get back a stack trace, which is 20 function calls deep, and perhaps 12 or 15 of them are internal Ramda calls wrapping functions or currying functions or setting the arity of a function. And the general approach that we've taken with Ramda is to be hands-off and to say, if you give us valid data, we will do the right thing. If you give us invalid data, we will fail in unexpected ways and you'll be debugging stack traces. And I think that works well enough for simple programs and for Ramda programs that don't make heavy use of algebraic data types. But if one is using Ramda in conjunction with a library which provides algebraic data types, things like maybe, either, future, task, these sorts of things, it can become difficult to write this code correctly the first time. Let's say that we're dealing with a list of maybes inside an either, inside a future. We'll be mapping several levels deep. And in Haskell or a language like that, it wouldn't matter if we didn't get the code exactly right first time because we could compile the code and have the compiler tell us there's a type mismatch on this line of this file. You gave me this, but I was expecting that, and we could easily fix the code. In JavaScript, of course, the closest thing we have to that is comprehensive unit tests. And to write some code, run the tests, have them fail, and then figure out from the way in which they fail what it was that we did wrong. And to me, that isn't a great feedback loop because I don't particularly enjoy looking at stack traces and figuring out why it was that I got a particularly obscure error you know, 10 function calls after I made my mistake. So one of the things I've been working on in a companion project to Ramda is having runtime type checking in order to make that feedback loop faster and in order to make it clear to me when I've done something wrong, what it is that I did wrong. Not just to say undefined is not a function or cannot call method slice of null or one of these common errors that we see when working with pipelines in JavaScript. In some cases even, a pipeline may have a type error, which may still work correctly in some cases due to, for example, implicit type coercion in JavaScript. I had an example of that the other day where I looked at some code and I thought, that's not doing the right thing. Append is a function that takes a list as its second argument, but we were passing it a string. But due to the implementation details of append and due to you know, type coercion, we were actually able to append a string to a string and get a string back, 
which is not what that function is documented to do. It happened to work correctly, but it was also quite confusing to look at the code and to uh, figure out why it even worked. So I'm a big believer in having the code fail in a way that is helpful to the person writing it. So of course, by the time the code is correct, it doesn't matter whether there's type checking or not, because we've already got the types to line up, but getting the types to line up in JavaScript with no help from a compiler is pretty challenging and humans don't make very good compilers. Yeah, that was one of the things I was wondering was, I'm like, if it's a library versus another language, how it handled the implicit typing. But what I got out of you explaining that was, it's just more sanity. Like if we expect a string, expect a string, the contract may still be implicit and it's documented via documentation. But just say, if we're expecting a string, if you pass this in it, JavaScript might coerce hmm. it to a string, but you're going right. to get what you get because you should have passed the string. Yeah, that's definitely the, the approach that Ramda takes. That's partly driven by performance concerns. It's also partly because we've discussed having two different builds of the Ramda.js file, one which has type checking baked in and one which doesn't. You know, I think that's a, a great idea. And if there were a debug build or a type checked build, I would certainly like to use that in my own code because I actually write almost entirely server-side JavaScript and the performance cost is not something that I think would really be a, a factor for me. So that's something that I could work on at some point because I would like to see it. Another idea that I've had is to create a, a separate library, which is purely a way to define functions in such a way that one gets back a curried type-checked function. So one interesting interaction between currying and type checking is that it's really important to do the type checking as the arguments are being applied. So if I could provide an example, let's say that we have a function that takes three arguments. Let's say it takes three numbers, for example. If the type checking lives inside the function and the function is curried by a higher order function, that will only apply the wrapped function once all three arguments have been provided, then it's impossible to do any type checking at the time that the first argument is provided. So what ends up happening is it's possible to partially apply a curried function with some invalid argument, but only find out about it later on. So what's really nice is to be able to say, we want curried functions. We also want to type check the arguments so let's type check the arguments as they're applied. And if we have this curried function that takes number, 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 then make sure when we're given the first argument at that time that that value is a number. And if not, throw a type error and give a descriptive message, say, look, the first argument to function f must be of type number. You gave me you know, a list of strings, whatever it was. So you mentioned fantasy land as well. And... It seems like if you just came from a group that was talking about some of the stuff and just using it in C or whatever, when you're first being exposed to functional programming, how did you make the jump into a lot of this concept of stronger typings and more thinking at the higher level of types that's more in line with an ML or Haskell than just what JavaScript gave you out of the box? How did that mindset happen? Was that just from starting to use Ramda 
or was there some other influences? Because you also kind of mentioned pre-call, some interest in Haskell too. So how did you kind of go from the functional programming and may or may not have types and thinking of JavaScript or some of these other languages where you can do functional programming in more of a dynamic language versus going full on functional programming, pure functional programming and hardcore types? And how did that translation come about? Well, I seem to recall one of the earliest interactions that I had with Haskell was watching the Eric Meyer series of lectures, the Channel 9 lectures. I think he gave 13 lessons on Haskell, and they're all available free online. And that was a really wonderful kind of introduction. It didn't require any background in functional programming or in Haskell. And it really surprised me how simple some of these concepts were. And by simple, I don't mean familiar. I mean, they just made sense. You know, when he introduced maybe, for example, he described it as essentially a list that could either be empty or could have one value. And that made it really clear why we should, for example, be able to map over a maybe because we can map over an empty list and get back an empty list. That's obviously a safe operation. If we map over a list with one value in it, we expect to apply the transformation to that one value and to get back a new list. And obviously, like Eric Meyer is just like such a fun guy, wears those crazy tie-dye t-shirts. And he just, you know, got me really excited about learning different ways of thinking about programming. I would say that Fantasyland, which is, it's a specification for, well, let me get this from the website, specification for interoperability of common algebraic structures in JavaScript. So the wordiness of that description is a good indication of how approachable or perhaps unapproachable this specification is. It's very useful. Ramda provides support for many of these ideas in the specification, but essentially it's saying in order to call yourself a functor, you must you know, satisfy these laws. If you want to call yourself a chain, you need to satisfy these laws. If you want to call yourself a monad, you need to satisfy these laws. And it is a, a wonderful reference, and I'm very pleased that Fantasyland exists. I wouldn't recommend Fantasyland as a resource for someone who's interested in learning functional programming because it doesn't really have that as one of its goals. It's pretty dry, and it's just some text that says, if you want to be one of these, you have to provide this set of methods and they must obey these laws. So I would say that my interest really came partly through discovering Haskell, watching the Eric Meyer talks, working through some of Learn Your Haskell, which is a really cool website for getting into this. And the thing that perhaps had the biggest influence on me was taking a Coursera course late last year. The title of the course is simply programming languages. And I forget the surname of the professor, but his name is Dan. He's a really great lecturer. And the course provided a really interesting perspective because what he did is he said, let's start by dividing all programming languages into a two by two grid. So we have dynamically typed languages and we have statically typed languages. And then in the other direction, we have object-oriented languages, and we have functional languages. 
So that gives us four possible quadrants. And then there are languages that live in each of those four quadrants. And the course then covers three of those four quadrants. The one quadrant that it doesn't look at is the statically typed object-oriented quadrant, figuring that most people have experience with Java or C++. And so that is already fairly well covered. So what it looked at was ML, that was the functional statically typed language. We looked at Racket, so that was the functional dynamically typed language. And we looked at Ruby, the functional object-oriented language. It really made me appreciate how many trade-offs there are involved in creating a language. Even the choice between you know, dynamically typed and statically typed is a trade-off. And some of the things that were possible for us to do in Racket, working with macros, for example, probably would not have been an option for us in the ML portion of the course, for example. So that course gave me, a, I guess, more perspective rather than just sort of turning my nose up at Ruby, for example. I sort of thought to myself, okay, I don't personally prefer object-oriented programming languages, but I can see the beauty of a language like Ruby. If one is going to have an object-oriented language, you know, let's fully commit and really make the language all about objects. And I think that's something that is strange working with JavaScript a lot of the time, is that JavaScript doesn't really know what it wants to be. It has an object model. It has prototypes that do enable inheritance, but it's not very natural to use inheritance in JavaScript. It enables some of the functional programming patterns, but not others. It's largely imperative and based around mutation. So yeah, it's a really odd language, but the thing that I do enjoy about JavaScript is that it is flexible enough to fix a lot of its shortcomings. And of course, take 10 people, they'll have 10 different ideas as to how to fix those shortcomings. But it means that at least everyone has a fighting chance of using JavaScript in a way that they believe is best. And so I obviously have strong opinions about how we should be writing code. Uh, if I had my choice, I would spend less of my time writing JavaScript. But what's also really important to me is having the ability to introduce functional programming to lots of people, you know, people like me a few years ago. And I think that what some people have done in the past, and I don't blame them for this, is they've grown up writing JavaScript or Ruby or Python or whatever it is, have discovered the one true way, whatever that is for them, and have then perhaps written one or two blog posts before uh, sort of leaving behind their roots and purely writing Scala or Haskell or Clojure, whatever it is. And I think that the JavaScript community is so large that we really owe it to all these current and future programmers who will no doubt at some point be exposed to JavaScript. We owe it to these people to provide some sort of pathway that they can follow in order to eventually end up watching Eric Mon as Haskell lectures and doing Learn Your Haskell. So with that community of JavaScript developers and programmers and whatnot, if the goal is to leave that legacy and show that you can do some of the stuff in JavaScript and be more pure, more functional, 
with at least some discipline, if nothing else, and then escalate to other things such as Ramda and underscore and whatever else is needed. How have you found bringing these ideas into your work at Plaid, as you've said, where you've started been doing this, you brought this in, you're using this. Was everybody you were working with kind of already on board with the functional programming or was this something you kind of had to get on board and say, look, we can do functional programming. Here's what it is. And then here's why we should be introducing things like Ramda as well. Well, one thing that did play into my favor was that when I did join Plaid, there was only one other engineer. So the team was tiny. So I already had 50% of the team on board with any idea that I had, but no. So none of the engineers who've joined Plaid since have had any background in functional programming. Several have had an interest in functional programming, but haven't used it professionally. But it's been great to have a group of people, most of whom really are interested in thinking about better ways to build software and ways that we can avoid making some of the same errors again and again. And a lot of us are now in our free time taking courses to learn more about functional programming, to see what it's like to work with a statically typed functional language. And I think we're in a really good place now. But in the past, I would say that I didn't do a good job of presenting these new ideas to other members of the team. You know, I sort of would spend some time learning about something and working out how to apply it to a particular problem that I was solving. And if I decided it had really been helpful in allowing me to solve that problem, I would then get terribly excited and would want to start using that in other places as well. And that's great. But what I didn't spend enough time on initially was thinking about how to really how to sell this new way of doing something to the other engineers on the team to frame it in a way that made it clear what problem that we currently had would this new approach solve or at least mitigate in some way. And the benefits of these different approaches are not self-evident. There were certain things that we had been burnt by enough times that there was no disagreement. So we'd been burnt several times by having essentially global mutable state. So whenever we introduced a change which reduced the amount of global mutable state, everyone was on board with that. But when, for example, we started introducing these algebraic data types, things like maybe and either, certain people on the team didn't have any context. And, you know, this was entirely my, my fault and would sort of be very confused by, oh, hang on, I thought map was something that only lists supported. Can you point me to the documentation? Oh, you haven't written documentation for that. So that was a big problem. If introducing a new concept to teammates, make sure that at the very least, you can point them to some documentation. We started using a library that I worked on and still work on called Sanctuary. And I think until about 0.4, there was no documentation, uh, not even in the source code. You know, all there were were type signatures and even the type signatures are quite cryptic until one learns how to interpret them. So that was, that was a big mistake on my part. Definitely focus on how 
I should have said to myself, how am I going to empathize with my teammates? And how am I going to remind myself what it was like two months ago when all this stuff was new to me as well, before I spent weeks and weeks getting my head around it and figuring out why it makes sense? And then think of a way to present this, perhaps you know, do some sort of short slideshow or just get people around the table at lunchtime and talk about these ideas rather than just opening a pull request and refactoring a bunch of code and assuming that people will just figure it out for themselves. And did the ability to essentially give up on the implicit objects in JavaScript and build your own objects and whatnot kind of go away and just treat those functions and modules as pure modules and not hold that state that people try to do and create classes in JavaScript as well? Was that something that was pretty easy to drop with your teammates as they were coming in and taking that approach and getting rid of that past behavior? That actually hasn't been too difficult. In some cases, we do still have the boilerplate of constructor functions and methods simply to preserve backwards compatibility. But in many cases, it's an empty shell. The constructor isn't storing any properties. It's simply returning a value that then has various methods. And those methods are really just functions because they don't reference this and they're not updating the state of the object. So that was actually one of the, one of the changes which was fairly easy to get through. And I think that's one of the examples of JavaScript being quite an asset. I don't think it would be possible in a, in a language with a really nice object system like Ruby it wouldn't be possible to wean people off using objects because that's the natural way of working in Ruby, for example. In JavaScript, it's really just as easy to create object literals that are really more like structs, just something that doesn't have baggage about who created it, but simply just is a bunch of fields that have you know values of known types. So we're a lot happier just working with functions that take plain values rather than having these object-oriented interfaces. That sounds really nice because that's one of the things when I do JavaScript and get involved with it is that's one of the things that kind of makes me bang my head against the desk is I work with people who want to get better and learn it, but there's all that baggage and they haven't been bitten and scarred enough by those objects that it's, hey, maybe pure functions or more functional approach, even if they're not quite completely pure, but let's pull these out into functions that don't mess with state as much and trying to transform that aspect and say, look, yes, you can do JavaScript in this way, but there's also Mm -hmm. another way you can do this. Right. And I think what's tricky, and I don't have a good solution to this, is that at the end of the day, all of these good practices require a lot of discipline and I would argue that writing good code in JavaScript is much more difficult than writing good code in, say, Haskell, because there are lots more bad solutions. There are lots of ways that one can shoot oneself in the foot. And the only thing really to prevent one from doing that is a combination of experience and discipline, and I guess perhaps code review. But yeah, it's it's really easy to get into a complete tangled up mess And there have been certain times where at Plaid we've been debugging some 
piece of code, which might be some old Plaid code. It might be some third party package that we need to understand. And yeah, it, it it's really, uh, it's really painful to try to understand even a hundred lines of code, which is just messing with some hidden state at every turn. So it's really refreshing to find a piece of JavaScript, which, you know, is just a collection of pure functions with ideally with some type signatures. Unfortunately, these are not checked by any compiler, but at least for the reader, it's nice to be able to say, oh, foo is a function that takes a list of numbers and returns a number. Having used this Haskell style type notation for some time, I've really grown to appreciate it to the point that anytime someone opens a pull request, I'll, you know, I'll leave comments saying, hey, what's the type of this function? And I think the best way to write a function is to start by writing the type signature. What is it that my function is doing? How am I transforming the input? And often the implementation of the function will fall right out of the type signature. And if there's one thing that drives me crazy in the JavaScript ecosystem more than anything else, it's the number of functions that accept, let's say, three or four arguments, all of which may be optional. Sometimes it's even possible to provide these arguments in different orders. Maybe ABC and ACB both work because it's doing all this internal type checking and argument juggling and just trying to figure out what you meant. And the idea is that these functions are somehow easy to use because they don't require one to provide the arguments in the right order. They don't require one to provide all the arguments if the default values are acceptable in some cases. But what it results in is never being quite sure what any particular application of a function will do and needing to actually read the source code to find out, okay, well, is this argument optional? Can I provide? Yeah, It, it just adds, it essentially builds this matrix of all the possible ways in which this function could be interpreted, this function call. And there's no way to express that kind of madness in the Haskell type notation. So for me, that's, that's a wonderful benefit is if you have to write your function as input arrow output for some input type and some output type, there's no way to do all this crazy type juggling and handling of optional arguments. I think optional arguments have got to go. So I want to circle back around before we run out of time and talk about something you kind of touched on towards the beginning was testing. You mentioned testing in JavaScript previously was because of all the implicit typing and all the dynamic level of this. Have you found that using these libraries and taking a more functional approach and a even pure functional approach where you can have a big impact on what your test looks like and how you test your JavaScript? Yeah, I think it does simplify testing. The thing that one spends a lot of time testing in JavaScript is not how a function handles valid input, but how it handles all the possible invalid input, or at least that's the reality when building a system. So something like an API, for example, an HTTP API, I mean, one needs to know, okay, when the user provides invalid input, how are we going to handle that? And what will be the appropriate response? There's an extra level of confusion if one also has to be worried about misuse of any particular function. I think it's still important to, at some level, draw the line and make assumptions as to where is 
my code, where is the code that this project is responsible for, and to assume that that code behaves correctly. But it's also nice when providing any sort of interface for other people to use. It's nice to be able to say, well, I want your experience of interacting with my interface to be as nice as possible. And I do want to test the invalid input cases as well as the valid ones. But at least with a lot of the code at Plaid, we're fairly optimistic. We assume that all our own uses of, say, any given Ramda function are correct and don't necessarily... We essentially adopt the Ramda approach of saying, well, so long as the types all line up, there won't be any unexpected type errors and we don't need to test those. There's a, a related question, of course, of how to handle expected errors. Expected errors being something like, as I mentioned earlier, taking user input, say, via an HTTP request. Perhaps the user is posting a JSON body to the API. And the first thing we need to do is to attempt to parse that JSON. Of course, there's no guarantee that that will be a valid JSON body, and we may not be able to parse it, and we need a way to, to handle that. But again, I would say that a functional approach can greatly simplify the handling of these, I like to call them expected errors, because one can create a functional pipeline of a sequence of operations that may fail, and any one of those operations could fail, for example, and produce a, a left if one were to use the either type then one can either produce a left, which contains a failure value, such as an error message, or a right, which contains the result of a successful computation. And one can stick together lots of these operations that may fail in such a way that the operation as a whole will short circuit as soon as one operation fails. And at the end of that entire sequence of operations, one will have a left containing an error message indicating exactly what went wrong. So for example, if the first step in the pipeline is attempting to parse JSON, if the JSON is invalid, there'll be a message at the end and you'll be able to reply to the user to say, your JSON is invalid. Perhaps the JSON is valid, but we're expecting to get, say, a list of user objects inside the JSON. And perhaps each user object is expected to have a username field. So we could have a separate step in the sequence, which would be to attempt to pull out all the username fields from the list of user objects provided in the request. And if any one of these user objects did not contain a username property, we could consider that a failure case as well. And again, short circuit and end the sequence of transformations with a value that indicates that, hey, you provided some JSON, it was valid, but you didn't provide me with a list of users with username fields, which is what I expected. So one can end up essentially handling all of these different failure cases in one place, rather than having, say, three different things that may fail that require three different try-catch blocks or conditional logic in order to verify that something is in a particular form. And I guess with the JSON payload, it makes it easier. At least I would presume, and this is my route I try and push, is that 
because these are functions, you can build up a JSON payload and just pass that in as a object literal instead of saying, well, we got to either mock out the request and have it mock out something, or we've got this thing that's an object now, not an actual just a JSON object literal because it's some sort of user service response object that you then have to dig in and pull out the state and mock out that says, well, if I call this function on this object, I want to pull this part out. Right. I think it's it's really nice to avoid having all that extra baggage if we can and just stick to object literals most of the time. One thing that has occurred to me recently is that JavaScript uses objects for two things that I consider quite different. One of those is as dictionaries. So I might have a mapping from, say, US state code to US state name. So, okay, that's a string to string dictionary. Quite a different use, though, is what we've just touched on with user objects, for example. Perhaps we need a username, a first name, a last name, and an email address. Well, that really is a Haskell record or a C struct or what have you, where each of the values can have a different type potentially. And one of the things that I realized was tricky for me, having written so much JavaScript, was to realize that the object literal was doing these two different things. Uh, And it's really helped me to detangle those two use cases. And even in type signatures to start talking about, say, the state code to state name mapping as a value of type strip map, which is what PureScript calls it, a string map with a value of type string. So that tells me that this is a mapping from string to string, whereas a user object I might represent in this Haskell-esque type notation as something that has a username of type string and maybe a a sign-up date of type number or date perhaps. And to treat those differently, the big difference between those two is if we're thinking of something as a record, then we should be making assumptions. And again, this is a dynamically typed language, so we're just making assumptions. But we should make assumptions about the presence of certain fields and the values that those certain fields should hold. So given a user object, we should have confidence in the fact that it will have a username field and the value will be a string. Whereas given some sort of dictionary, string to string mapping, for example, we know nothing about the particular keys that will exist within that dictionary. So I was I was pleased to realize that I'd been confusing two separate concepts for many years just due to the fact that JavaScript doesn't provide different data structures for those two different use cases, or at least didn't until ES6 gave us map, but not many people are using that at the moment. So we're getting close to end of time. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you think we need to talk about? Sure. Well, I've just got a couple of a couple of things that I'd like to recommend. One is a wonderful talk by Scott Voloshin named Railway Oriented Programming. So I think this is the talk that I wish that I had seen, say, six months or a year ago, because this is a wonderful way to introduce monads to people who have no prior experience with functional programming, but who have had experience with handling errors, which is you know, every programmer. 
And it shows how we can fit different functions together by using bind to essentially change the shape of a function. And he presents functions as pieces of railway track and shows how they connect together. I think it's a wonderful way to visualize how the bind function operates to make functions that would not otherwise fit together, fit together. So I think that's really great. And if there's one other thing that I'd like to plug, it's actually a book that I'm reading now that has nothing to do with programming specifically, but I think a lot of people in your audience would really enjoy reading it. That's a book by Daniel Kahneman. It's called Thinking Fast and Slow. And it's about the way in which we reach decisions and all the many biases that all of us have but are not aware of. And it's just fascinating reading this book and being presented with a scenario and coming to a conclusion and then on the next page being told exactly why that's wrong and why it is that our brains are you know, wired to make all these shortcuts. And often these shortcuts are helpful, but some of the time, you know, we reach, we reach a very incorrect conclusion. So anyway, that's, I think, a, a great book to, to read if you're interested in nonfiction and enjoy thinking, which I'm sure many of your listeners do. Yeah, I've heard good things about that one. So is there anything you want to have a call to action for? Anything you want people listening to this after they've listened to this episode to go out and... Sure. So I'm sure many of your listeners spend at least some of their time in the JavaScript world, even if it's just, you know, reluctantly fixing something on the website. If any of you do want to see what it's like to be in a community of JavaScript programmers who really care about functional programming, I suggest hanging out on the Ramda room on Gitter, which is pretty active while it varies. There'll be days where no one says anything and there'll be days where it goes completely crazy with activity, but it's a really lovely community. There are lots of people in there asking questions and trying to figure things out together. One person one day recently said is set a functor. And then we had this conversation and we were all trying to figure it out. And after about half an hour, someone did the Google search and the first result was a stack overflow answer for is set a functor. But we just had a good time trying to figure it out ourselves. So if you're interested in coming up and saying hi, Gitter is the best place to find us. That sounds good. So where can people find you personally and follow along with some of the stuff you're doing, whether that's your personal blog, your Twitter accounts, or wherever you want people to come on, find you to see what's going on in the world of David Chambers? Sure. Well, the best two places are certainly GitHub. My username is David Chambers. And on Getter, yeah, just feel free to send me a message, say hello. And, you know, if you'd like to contribute to Ramda or any of these other projects, we're always welcoming new contributors. So come on and say hello. And we'll make sure to add all those links to the show notes that you just mentioned as well. Sure. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, David, for taking your time out of your evening tonight to come on the podcast and talk with me about all this stuff. Thanks, Proctor. It was fun. Yeah, it was a great pleasure talking to you and finding out more and seeing some of the options out there for JavaScript and being more functional, going past underscore and low dash and the like, and starting to ramp it up even more. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.